is Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table with the Pharisee, in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster, alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which, one, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Grass withers, the flower fades, word of our God stands forever. So in our text this morning, we have kind of a study of contrast. These two big figures come out to us, the one of the Pharisee who's invited Jesus over for dinner, and then this woman who is someone of, of ill repute. And having just read this story, and likely, likely you've heard this story before at some version if you've been in church, but if you could just take a few moments and try to pretend like you didn't know this story, didn't know how this all works down, and you had to kind of try to make a guess. Who's going to come out top on, on top in this scenario? We have this religious man, this guy who is externally conforming to all the laws. He is an upright, upstanding individual. And then we have this woman who is of a sinner, as Simon calls her. Likely, we don't know for sure, likely a seventh commandment breaker. For next, for next week, she's a breaker. The seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. We don't know if she necessarily is a prostitute, but she is of some sort a woman of a sinner, a, a certain type of woman that Jesus, according to Simon's designation, should not be touching Jesus, that Jesus should not allow her to even be touching him. But if you could pick, try to forget the story for a second, and you see the scene, Righteous, upstanding, good Simon the Pharisee, woman of ill repute, the, the breaker of the commandments, this sinner, which one is going to come out justified? 
I mean, and I don't think, I mean, I, if we were to look at this from our external perspective, I think it's a no-brainer. Go with the guy who shows the evidence of being a good person, right? We're going to go with this Simon the Pharisee. Surely this is the guy that things are going to go well for. And this sinful woman, this, this woman of, of, of bad uh, you know, reputation in the community, surely she is going to be the one to be proved to be the wicked person that she is. But that's not the way the story goes, is it? It's exactly the opposite of what happens. These two figures... These contrasts come before us, and by the end of the parable, Simon the Pharisee is lowered to his real state, and this woman has her sins forgiven, and she is told to go in peace. Simon's world is turned upside down as being this person that Jesus questions his motives and who he is, and this this woman of ill repute, she is told to leave in peace. But really, if, if we've paid attention all the way along, and if we've paid attention to, to sermons from Jesus, we shouldn't be surprised to see this. This goes on continuously, over and over again in our Gospels. Do we see this lowering of the exalted and the exalting of the humbled? It's the, way, it's the song Mary sings, her Magnificat, when she finds out the Holy Spirit has shown up to her and, and an angel has told her she's going to be come pregnant with a child and bear the son of that she's going to bear this child that she sings this song and that God has looked upon the lowly state of her servant that he has had mercy on her that though she though being a sinner that he has had mercy on her and that he is um is raising her up in her humility he's exalting her in her humility and we could go on to the sermon on the plain where he says blessed are the poor for they shall become rich Blessed are those who are sorrowful, for they shall rejoice. Blessed are those who are hungry now, for they shall become satisfied. There's this upside, there's this turning upside down that goes on in the Gospels over and over again. And here we see it in our text this morning. This righteous Simon the Pharisee and this, 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 this despised woman. And what you think would happen doesn't happen. She is the one that is raised up and given peace. So our text breaks down basically into three sections, right? We have the actual event, we have this parable, and then we have this, this, insti- this um, indictment, this rebuke of, of Simon the Pharisee. The event, the parable, and the indictment. But first, let's just look at what are the, uh, the facts of this event. Luke doesn't really give us a passage of time. Lots of times they'll say, after such and such time, or after a period of time, or one day he went, whatever. He just launches straight into this. One of the Pharisees. We'd have no passage of time after this event with the John the Baptist disciples. Just this direct switch to the Pharisee's house. And this is the second party that Jesus has attended at a Pharisee's house. Do you remember the first party? The first party at a Pharisee's house is with a man named Levi, who becomes Jesus' disciple. This is the party at Levi's house. And equally, in that situation, it goes bad for the Pharisees as well. But you can read about that back in chapter 5. But the party there doesn't go well for the Pharisees either. But this time, though, the Pharisee isn't a disciple. Uh, He isn't someone who's throwing the party because he's found Jesus. He wants his friends to know about Jesus. This man, we, we can't really tell what his motives are. Other, he's not a disciple. We can tell that much. Because it, de- it definitely wasn't out of some great respect for Jesus that he throws this party. It's possible even that the Pharisee would have 
felt pretty good about being so nice to Jesus. He's giving this itinerant rabbi who's traveling around, he's really doing him a favor by letting him come into his house. But so as the meal goes on, Jesus is approached by this sinful woman. And to kind of understand how this happens, we probably should take just three minutes or so and talk about how the parties and meals went down at this time. So now if we have a big formal room, we, or a formal dinner, we would all gather in a big fancy dining room, right, with the chandeliers above it. We'd all sit in chairs, and there'd be tablecloths, and every one of us that's properly Midwestern would be unnerved by the waiter constantly filling your water glass and attending to you and all that kind of stuff. But that wasn't the way dinner parties were had back then. This likely happened in a, a, a large courtroom area. If the Pharisee was well off, his house would have a, a courtyard, a big open area, and he'd have something like a shelter house basically out in the courtyard where the, the parties were had because you didn't want to go sit inside. I mean, if all we did was open the windows and that was our heating and cooling in here, we'd all be in trouble, right, because it'd be 100 degrees in here. So they went and met outside. They'd sit under a shelter house. That way you'd have the shade and you'd also have the breeze. And the table, they didn't have chairs they sat in, would have been a low table that all the food was served on, and to eat it, you would recline at table. So they had these things called couches, which to me looks more like a yoga mat or like a, a, a mattress from your lounge chair out in your, out in your backyard. That was the couch. And so you'd have a couch and you would lay with your feet back from the table on your left elbow and you would eat from the table, recline. And your feet would stick back away from the table because, well, because their feet. But it was also... If you don't mind feet, if you don't have an aversion to feet, if it was also disrespectful to point your feet at someone back in that culture to show someone the bottom of your foot was disrespectful. That's why the you know it's those cultures they have the shoe throwing thing. You know where that went down with was that Bush or something that somebody threw a shoe at him? I can't remember what that was. But it was this, this awful thing of it's like showing you their foot. It's a it's not just I don't have anything to throw at you. It's like here's the bottom of my foot, and so feet were dishonorable. And so they stuck back from the table and they all would sit and eat. And this is likely what Jesus was doing. He was at this party uh, having a meal at this Pharisee's house with his feet sticking back away from the table. And, and normally at this time period, if you showed up for a party because everyone walked and they had sandals and it was dusty and uh, every animal traveled on the road as well and they didn't have uh, the parade followers to clean up after the animals, so their feet were disgusting a, a lowly servant would wash feet, right? So you'd show up, and then the servant that was low man on the totem pole would bring the basin of water out and wash your feet off and, and clean your feet so you'd feel refreshed. They'd give you a holy kiss when they'd greet you. They would kiss you on the cheek, welcome you in, anoint your head with oil. Might be something along the lines of they'd take some olive oil, some sort of inexpensive oil, and put it on your forehead, maybe to freshen your face up. I don't want olive oil on my face, but I don't know, maybe I don't. Maybe use moisturizers. That's what they're doing. They're, they're freshening themselves up for the meal. These are all things that typically would have gone on if you're inviting someone into your party. But it doesn't happen for Jesus. Instead, he's sitting there reclining at table and up walks this sinful woman. And who is this sinful woman? We don't really know. We, we don't hear any more about who she is. Don't confuse this with the story later on where Mary of Bethany 
uh, breaks the, the alabaster jar and, and the oil is, anoints Jesus for his burial. And Judas says, hey, we could have used that money to feed the poor. That's a different instance. Happens from Mary at Bethany later on in Jesus' life. This one seems to be a different event where this is just this sinful woman who likely is involved in a breaking of the seventh commandment in some way. It's not Mary of Bethany. But she shows up and begins to weep at Jesus' feet. At some point, this woman has heard the gospel of forgiveness that Jesus has been preaching on, that he has come not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance, which is the message he gave at the last Pharisee's party. Somewhere along the line, this woman has heard the declaration of the forgiveness of sins to sinners. She's heard this message from Jesus. He's been preaching it. He's been declaring it as he goes around to parties. And somewhere along this line, she has heard it. Maybe as she is walking up to find Jesus at this party, maybe he, she overhears him talking about it at this party even. We don't really know. But at some point, she's understood this reality of the forgiveness of sins that comes from Jesus. So much so that when she walks up, she cannot control her tears. She cannot control the, her emotions. She is so moved about what this Savior has declared for her that she cannot control her tears. Why tears? Well, a mixture of tears. I, I cry, well, I, that's, I shouldn't say this. I cry more often like tears of just joy, of, like, of, of how, you know, whenever something incredible happens, like... Uh, just wait if my, my kids ever grow up and gra- when Joel graduates from pre-K, I'm going to be the dad who's like a bubbling, you know, just like a fool over my kid graduating pre-K. I can't take a man crying. Like if a man sees their kid walk out from... I shouldn't share this with you. Why am I doing this? I don't know. That, that There's tears of joy that happen, right? Where you're not even... It's not like some sad event has happened, but just because you're so overwhelmed with joy that tears begin to flow. So it's, it's possible that these are tears of joy. It's also possible that just tears of grief over who she is, this repentance of this is, my, this is how my life has been, and these tears, and, and sometimes it's a combination of both. And I would guess with her, it's a combination of both. Tears of sorrow over the rejection, the rebellion that she's lived in, tears of her, of her sinful life and tears of joy in the forgiveness that has come to her through her Savior. And as these tears fall from her face, they begin to hit Jesus' feet. She gets down, she begins to wipe. She sees, why are his feet not washed at this party, you would assume, and begins to clean them off with her hair, which is another very uh, shameful thing for a woman to let down her hair in this culture. And she has this alabaster jar of ointment that the only way, very expensive, the only way to access it is to break the neck of it. And then you dump it all out, you use all of it, you spend this oil, and she anoints his feet. And when that fragrance begins to float around and they begin to see this despised woman ministering to Jesus, it doesn't go unnoticed. Simon sees it. So that's kind of the event. We got that from the story, flesh it out a little bit. Now comes the parable. Simon in his head. Did you notice that in the text? (laughs) Simon, now when the Pharisee, verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. 
Simon's thoughts. He thinks this thought. Why doesn't Jesus reject her? And Jesus answers him. So do that. That's kind of wicked stuff going on there. That they didn't say it. He didn't ask Jesus, "What are you doing?" He's just thinking it and says it to himself. But anyway, Jesus answers with this parable. And he gives him this question. It's pretty straightforward. There's two debtors. They both owe a certain money lender, and they owe them different amounts. He says our, our usage of money here is, is 500 denarii and the other 50. But the, the, from my commentaries that I read, it's like a comparison of two months' wages to almost two years' wages. That's the, that's the mon- monetary value there is comparable to a couple of months worth of wages to two, almost two years of wages. So to translate that, if you make $60,000 a year, let's just say that, that's comparable to saying one person owes $10,000 and the other owes $120,000. Those are the discrepancies between the amounts of money owed. One owes $10,000, that's a substantial amount of money. One owes $120,000, that's a more substantial amount of money. So this is the parable that he lifts up. Which one, if this moneylender says to the debtors, don't worry about it, it's forgiven. I, I, I would pay it off. The moneylender, seeing that neither one could pay back, we'll note that later here, forgives both of them their debts. And then the question comes from Jesus, which one will love more? Simon answers correctly. Well, obviously the one who has been forgiven more. Parable is very straightforward, but it leads us then to the indictment. As straightforward as the parable is, Simon gets more than he asked for. The circumstances of this event, the parable that Jesus shares, all of this lead to a very serious reality for the Pharisee. Simon the Pharisee doesn't get and doesn't see how great his debt of sin is. He doesn't see his debt as being that great. It's likely why he doesn't offer Jesus any special treatment. Maybe he considers, as I said, he's doing Jesus a favor. You know, this struggling rabbi, go do Masala. I'm going to bring him in. He can, he can party with the, the upper echelon in the community. He needs to be around the kind of, he needs to hobnob with some big wigs. So I'm going to be nice to this guy and I'll invite him in. Now, I'm not going to kiss him because I'm not going to greet him the way I'm supposed to greet people. I'm not going to wash his feet. I'm not going to anoint him. I don't want people to think I'm all in on this Jesus guy, but I'll help him out. I'll let him come in and let him share in the party a little bit. Simon has no idea the great debt and the great trouble that he is in. He figures he's invited Jesus in. He's feeding him. He's giving him audience with the elite people of the town. What more could Jesus possibly want? That Pharisee, to some degree, lives in all of us. That Pharisee, to some degree, lives in all of us. We are Simon when we think the things we do are payoffs in any respect and not all thankfulness for unmerited and undeserved grace. Do you ever remind God of what you've done for him? Do you ever find yourself in a place where you remind God what you've done for him? If you ever like, so say you just got done working at VBS, which is just a nightmare task for someone like me. Maybe you like it, I don't know. But I don't. So you got You're just surrounded by children, and you you've exhausted your whole week. Just surrounded by these kids, an exhausting event. You get done. It's successful. You walk out, and your tires flat on your car, and you just think, after all I've done all week with these children, you can't keep my tire up. You know, and that's a pretty light example. But you know what I'm saying? That there's. Have you ever had that? You know, why? 
you, you, I deserve better than this. Why, after all that I've done for you, why can't you do something else? Have you maybe, um, maybe you've had a, a good day and you've worked hard, you got up early, and you've, you've done your Bible reading, you've prayed, you've um, you spent your time investing in spiritual things, you go to work, you have a good day, you're faithful in your job, maybe a witness to a friend while you're there, you invite someone to church, and you go home and your kids and your wife are all mad at you and things all blow up. I'm, this is not personal experience. I shouldn't have shared it this way. Your spouse and your kids. And, 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 and you just think, after the day I have, this is how I get treated. You ever think that? I mean, I think if you're honest, that's the Simon Fair, the Pharisee in all of us. You lose your cool because... It doesn't go the way things. I deserve better than this after how good I was. And it reveals our heart of we pay God off to get things our way instead of out of a heart of gratitude for, how, for God not giving us what we deserve. We do things as a way to try to get God in our favor as opposed to doing things because of what God has already done for us in the work of Christ. Doing to get instead of doing because what has been given. See the differences there? Simon the Pharisee is the one who does because, boy, God, I'm going to put God in my debt. Jesus should be thankful that he has me on his team. And the woman weeping at his feet and washing his hands is doing acts of service and love because she sees clearly all that she already has in Christ. Leads us to three realities Three realities from this narrative here of Jesus' life. You will love much. You will love much only when you see a great forgiveness. And you will only see a great forgiveness when you see the great seriousness of your sin. You will love much only when you see a great forgiveness. And you will only see a great forgiveness if you see the seriousness of your sin. Simon the Pharisee could not love Jesus much couldn't but it wasn't because he didn't have a lot of sin to forgive it's because he couldn't see the greatness of his sin debt he couldn't see it he had no eyes for it he was the upstanding guy he was the guy who'd always done what he was supposed to do he was the religious leader he didn't love jesus much because he couldn't see the reality of his desperate need the pharisee could not love much not because he didn't have a lot of sin to forgive but because he couldn't see the greatness of his debt how great was his debt? How great was this Pharisee's debt? And so we say, go to the parable. Well, one owed 50 and one owed 500. So obviously the lady's the 500. He's just the 50. But I want you to note in the parable, certain moneylender, two debtors, one owed 500, one, owed one and the other 50, when they could not pay. The man, one of them's debt's 50, one of them's debt's 500. You know what the problem is? It isn't that it's 50 and 500. It's that neither of them could pay their debt off. Neither of them could pay. The person couldn't pay the 50. The person couldn't pay the 500. The person couldn't pay the 10 grand. The person couldn't pay the 120 grand. Neither one of them, which one's in a better state? Well, they're both off. They're both terrible. Because they're both have, it might as well be an infinite amount of debt. They have no way to pay it off. They cannot pay it off. It, in the end, it doesn't matter if your debt is 10, 50 or 500, 10,000 or $120,000. If you can't pay it off, it might as well be a billion dollar debt. Simon did not love much because he couldn't see the seriousness of his debt. James talks about this when he talks about the sin of partiality. So you go back to Hebrews, James, 
James chapter 2, he's talking about the sin of partiality. Just listen to how this relates. My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in the good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? He's bringing up this distinction of, and you can see this with Simon the Pharisee, honoring those who are well off and despising those who are not so well off. Verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But, James goes on, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Verse 9 again, but if you show partiality, if you sin in this one area, sin of partiality is saying, if you sin in this one area, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, one point, has become accountable for all of it. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable to all of it. In answer to how great then is the Pharisee's debt, and we could say then also how great is our debt, one could say the debt is unfathomable. It's immense. It is a debt we cannot pay off. There is no possibility of paying it back. If you have transgressed law, God's law in any way, shape, or form, either through sins of commission or omission, you are guilty of the whole law. And so, so far as both the small sinner and the large sinner are concerned, it doesn't matter. Both condemned. Both in trouble. Both need Jesus. Both are damned. The Pharisee looked around and he saw himself as a no sinner. Or maybe a little, but you know, I keep the law. And because of this, he totally misses the point. He says in verse 44, of, back in our Luke text, do you see this woman? The question he asks him, do you see this woman? Which is kind of a disguised question because really, it isn't just do you see this woman. He's saying to Simon, do you see yourself? You see this woman, but the, the whole story goes on. Do you see this woman in light of yourself? Do you see this woman? But really he's asking this Simon, the Pharisee, to see himself clearly. He could not, Simon could not see this woman for who she truly was, a repentant and forgiven sinner, and he could not see himself for who he was, a sinner in desperate need of repentance and forgiveness. Second observation, love to God flows from forgiveness, not for forgiveness. Love to God flows from forgiveness, not for forgiveness. The love to God this woman shows is from her forgiveness, not for her forgiveness. This is an important distinction to make. Verse 47 kind of makes it sound the other way. He says, therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And it's easy to think, well, she loved much, so she's forgiven. It's easy to read it that way. But you look at the parable again. Look at the parable again, and the whole concept of what Jesus is teaching is that the, the person loves 
because they are already forgiven. They don't love to receive the forgiveness. They love because they have received the forgiveness. Love to God flows from forgiveness, not for forgiveness. Jesus is, through this parable and the indictment, saying that this woman is producing the evidence and fruit of being forgiven because she loved much. Is that backwards in your head? I've got, I need to love God so that He'll forgive me. I've got to do this, do this, do this, do this so that God will love me. Is that the way your mind works? The gospel comes and says, God has done this, God has done this, God has done this for you in Christ. You are forgiven. Therefore, go in the joy of this love coming to you through your Savior, Jesus Christ. And love from a place of being forgiven, not love so that you can be forgiven. There's the difference that's coming on here. That when we begin to think that our love earns God's mercy, it immediately disqualifies itself because mercy, by definition, is not earned. Ephesians 2 couldn't be more clear. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. Not your own doing. Not something you've produced. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one can boast. And so we could say it's not a result of loving Jesus much that you receive forgiveness. You receive forgiveness by grace through faith according to the mercy of God. And because of that, love to God flows. For love to God and joy in Christ to increase, we need to see both the radical forgiveness of God and the reality of our great need. So very often, the thing we need is a thing we're so eager to run away from and despise. We as sinners, just by natural reaction, run from being called on our sin. We cannot stand the crushing that comes from God's law and our shortcomings looking into doing the Ten Commandments coming up this summer. What is that about? And the idea is the law crushes us. It shows us our condemned state. It shows us how bad off we really are. We don't get to play Simon the Pharisee. We would look into those things very deeply. We see, oh no, I'm the one that is condemned here. But I put forward to you the consideration that the joylessness that exists in the church and I mean universal everywhere, in all sorts of pockets, the joylessness that the church experiences today is not because we don't put forward a God who's approving enough. That's a theory of some, you know? They say, oh, people would, would love church more if they came in and, and they just knew the, this, this approval of, of who they are, what they do, no matter what. God loves, it's just, it's all, it's all fine, it's all well and good. I put forward that the joylessness that is in the church doesn't come because we haven't put forward a God who is approving enough, because, but because we do not tell the truth about how sinful we really are and how deserving we are of God's wrath. The reason why joylessness doesn't exist is not because we don't say God is good enough, God is approving enough, but we don't see ourselves clearly. And you think, well, how is that going to increase my joy, Darren? <laughs> 
how is, it, how is increasing the reality of my sinfulness going to make me happier? It is in that context that you see the gospel for the good news that it really is. It isn't just that I'm good enough and God loves me too. Hey, well, everybody loves me. I'm, I, I, I am everything I'm supposed to be and God loves me too. Well, whoop-de-doo. It is, that's no gospel. That's just adding one more trinket to your charm bracelet. The gospel is before a righteous and holy God, I deserve nothing but his wrath. And what does this God do that, deserves, that I deserve wrath from? He sends his son, lives the righteous life I should have lived, dies the death that I deserve, so that through repentance and faith in this work, I could be forgiven, washed clean of my sin, and reconciled to this good God. The gospel is this. We are more sinful. This is from Tim Keller. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Sometimes people would say, don't worry, you're far worse off than you think you are. (laughs) Don't worry, you're way worse off than you think you are. He says this, though. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. The gospel comes to us in this story here in the Pharisee and this sinful woman, lifting up both these realities. The amazing forgiveness of God that comes in the context of how undeserving we are that he would give us even the time of day. How great is your debt? And may I suggest to you that it's possible you're far worse off than even you think you are. If we were to lay out all of your shortcomings and all of your sins before the congregation, how difficult would the case of guilty of rejecting God be? Are you afraid to consider it even? Let's lay out for everybody our sins. Are you afraid? Don't be. Confess. Repent. There is no sin so great that the sacrifice of our perfect Savior cannot cover. This is what He has done. This is why He has came, how it ends, to forgive sin, to bring reconciliation through His life, death, and resurrection. And He calls for us like this woman, fall at His feet. Love for Christ, not for His forgiveness. Love for Christ because of His forgiveness. Offer the fragrance of a living sacrifice to Him. Rest in His forgiveness. Love greatly from a heart of gratitude for being forgiven greatly. Remember that we serve a risen Savior who can forgive sin. There is no better news than that. Let's pray. Father, give us eyes to see as we prepare to come to the communion table. Give us eyes to see. This is not something we merit. We, can, we do not deserve your forgiveness, yet you freely give through, by your grace, through faith, repenting of our sins. Give us eyes to see, God, that we would be bold like this woman, bold in our confession of sinfulness, bold in the reality of our impoverished, uh, condemned state before you, and rejoicing that in the midst of our depravity, you rescue You bring good news. You bring forgiveness of sin. Give us eyes to see this, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.